This morning's scripture is John 10, 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Thanks, Johanna. Good morning. Mark, if I had a nickel for every time I thought to myself, I shouldn't have done that, I would be a very rich man, well-intentioned. Y'all are in luck. I had a sheep. It won best in class. Its name was Filber. You get to hear me preach on shepherding. I'm just kidding. I did have a sheep named Filber, and it did win best in class, but you are not in luck because of that. It's a, it's a remarkable passage, and the heart of it is the uniqueness of Jesus to lead us into green pastures, into everlasting life in two things. If, if you're not familiar in the back, every week there's a, a basic outline. It'll help you to follow along, I hope. It's the outline I'm preaching from and help you to know where I am in this, where where I'm going, and lock in the things that I think from the text are most significant. And then on the back are just some questions to ask, things that occurred to me as I was reading through the text, meant to sort of draw out its heart. And then down below, some areas of application. This is a big deal. We learned this morning in our kickoff for Berea in Sunday school that the goal of learning is not just more knowledge or greater insight, but a transformed life. 
Pastor Mark, Mike told us we're meant to be transformers. Uh, that is to be transformed by what we hear and come to understand. And these are some ways that I think the text would call us to that. And in particular, share the good news with someone this week. This is Jesus saying his sheep hear his voice. But the bottom line is it's our privilege and our responsibility to share the voice of Jesus, the good news of Jesus with the world, that they might hear it and believe and come in and be safe and saved. And then secondly, consider the alternative voices you're listening to. Jesus makes us makes it plain, and I hope to help you see that in this passage, that there is his voice that leads to light and life and goodness, and forgiveness and reconciliation with God, and then there is every other voice. And so spend some time this week, I urge you, considering the voices that are shaping your thoughts, which then shape the way you see the world and live in it, the way you understand yourself and understand your place in this world in relation to Jesus and one another. Take a good inventory of that this week. So I hope you'll see why from this sermon that these are two of the main applications. With that, welcome to John 10. We've made our way chapter by chapter through the first nine chapters, and here we are in 10. The passage records an event that took place shortly. Again, timeline-wise, keep in mind that the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was seven through nine. That took place about six months before Jesus would be crucified at the Feast of the Passover. And the events of the beginning of 10 here took place sometime probably shortly after the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, um, but also we know shortly before the Feast of Dedication, which would have been two months later. I say that because of verses 21 and 22. You, you can see them if, if you have your Bibles. Take a look at 21 and 22. The timeline is there for us where it's clear that the healing of the blind man, which took place in chapter 9, is still fresh on everyone's mind. And in 22, the Feast of Dedication hadn't yet begun. So the event itself is another example of something fairly familiar to us. It's Jesus speaking to a group of Jews publicly, likely both ordinary Jews and their leaders, particularly the Pharisees, it seems. This time he taught in the form of a parable, or as John says, a figure of speech, a type of allegory. This is surprisingly rare in John's gospel. If you're familiar with the gospels, you know in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus regularly speaks through parable. Very, very rarely, if ever, if this is even technically a parable, there's some debate in John. But what isn't rare, however, was the subject matter and the response that he got for what he taught. The subject matter primarily concerned his own, Jesus' own uniqueness to sacrificially lead the people of God to fullness of life, which stood in stark contrast. He's telling, like many of his parables in the other Gospels, he's telling this parable to these religious leaders to condemn them for their harsh treatment of the Jews, of those they were charged by God to lead, to selfishly lead them, even unto death, Jesus says. That's the main subject matter. And the response of the Jews, and the Jewish leaders in particular, is one we've seen over and over. Once they understood what Jesus was really saying, they responded predictably with confusion about why he would be saying this to them, and anger that he would be saying this to them. The passage contains three sections, very helpfully. 
If you look at your Bibles, each one of them are neatly delineated by a paragraph, uh, three main sections. The first is one through six, and that's where Jesus tells the parable itself. The second section is seven through 18, and that's where he explains this because they didn't get it and then expands on it. And then finally, in the third section, in 19 to 21, we, we see the reaction of those who heard it. I'm going to preach at least three sermons on this, this passage. This week, I'm going to focus primarily on Jesus' teaching as it would have landed on his original audience. And as of now, my plan is that next week, Jesus makes this promise that I want us to get in a world that is exceedingly confused about what this means, that is seeking it desperately, but in all the wrong places. I'm going to preach on the abundant life that Jesus promised to give. What is that? What is the abundant life that Jesus came to bring? And then in three weeks, Lord willing, I'm going to, or two more weeks, I'm going to preach on how this passage It fits in with the larger story of the Bible, but how this passage shapes significantly our understanding at grace of what constitutes good eldership or pastoring as well as good membership. So the big idea for this week is that Jesus is Jesus alone. Jesus alone is the means by which we may be reconciled to God, that we may come to God in light of our sin against him and that he alone leads God's people to fullness of life on earth and in heaven. And the main takeaway for us today, as I mentioned at the very beginning, is to truly consider Jesus' voice. To truly consider it. What has he said? What what does he say to us in his word? The Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded, instructing them in all that he has said, that we would truly consider Jesus' voice and what it means for you and for me and for the God we serve and the world we live in, both what he has said and how we respond to it, especially as it relates to the voices clamoring all around us. That was the problem that Jews had run into at this point, was discerning what voice should they be listening to. And Jesus tells them in no uncertain terms, it is mine. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the message that is in it. Thank you that Jesus, you alone are the door. You alone are the good shepherd. You alone, through you alone, can we come reconciled and washed clean and redeemed to God. We have sinned and fallen short of his glory, and the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But you, as this passage even tells us explicitly, laid your life down and died the death that we deserve, that you might take it up and unite us with you through faith and resurrection of life. Thank you that you alone are able to do that, and you alone certainly did that on our behalf. God, help us, therefore, to listen to your voice and to know how we may gain access to that and benefit from what you did in love for this world. God, help us to recognize where we're not listening to your voice, but to some other voice. Help us in repentance to to tune them out, to listen to you, knowing that all that you say is better than everything else. Everything you call us to is better than everything else. We love that. I pray that you'd help us to love it even more this morning, that we might live more fully in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
a brief word to help you tune in. Hopefully you already are. You're eager. You've been praying all week for your own heart and the hearts of each other to sit before the Word of God together and be transformed by it. I'm sure all of you, at least an hour a day, I would imagine, have given yourselves to that. But even in spite of that, we still sometimes need a little bit more help. And Jesus gives it to us here. He opens his teaching in this passage with the words, truly, truly. This does not mean, of course, at least I hope you know, that Jesus had a reputation for lying and he's just making it clear. I know I've been busted a few times, but this time, for real, I'm telling you what's true. That's not it, of course. And likewise, obviously, it doesn't mean that the things he typically said were insignificant and he's just, you know, I, I know I'm usually a joker, but this time, this time, what I'm saying is different. That's not it either. But if not these things, what did he mean by truly, truly? Why did he talk like that here? I know I've mentioned the fact that within Jewish culture and Jewish literature, one manner of communicating emphasis was repeating key words. So the most familiar for most of us is probably in regard to God's holiness. To say that God is holy communicates something true and significant. And we see that in passages like Psalm 99, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God, for the Lord our God is holy. That's a big deal. You should hear that and listen to that. and Take that into account as we consider who he is and who we are in light of him. Well, a passage, if there were one, there aren't any, but if there was one that described God as holy, holy, two holies, that would mean something more serious still about God's holiness. And to say that God is holy, 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 which we do have, as in Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is as significant as it gets. There are no four, four repeated words in the Bible. And holy alone is the three repeated word. So while there are no double holies, there are a number of double trulies like we have here, 24 times in John's gospel alone including two in our passage. In other words, for Jesus to introduce this passage by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, by doing so, he meant for his hearers, including you and I, to listen carefully. He was What he was about to say deserves special attention because it had truly eternal consequences. So Grace, listen up. Here we go. Our passage opens again with the sharing of a parable or figure of speech, as verse 6 says. Again, shared with the Jews or to the Jews. Let's take another look at it. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 1, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep and by name and leads them out. When he has brought out his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. There's a lot going on here. When I first read it earlier this week in preparation, at the beginning of my preparation to preach on it, my head was filled mainly with questions. They mostly revolved around the different terms and what does Jesus mean by each of them? What is the, what are the analogical equivalents? What, what is he getting at here? Sheepfold, door, thief, robber, shepherd, sheep, gatekeeper, stranger. What are those things in real life, in spite of 
you know, my time with Filber. I have no idea what most of those mean. And what do they signify for us? Come to a bit of that in just a minute, but I want to start with something even a little more basic. The parable centers around something that would have been exceedingly familiar to those to whom Jesus was speaking, and that is caring for sheep. And yet what was certainly familiar to those that Jesus was talking to or that John records him speaking to in chapter 10 probably is not very familiar for most of us. So I think we need a little little bit of help. So as not to pretend I am, I have any help or that I'm an expert on my own, I want to read an extended quote from one of the commentators I read this week describing the scene. Most villages, most Jewish villages at this time owned a few, I'm sorry, most families, Jewish families who lived in a village had a, had a few sheep. The houses of the villagers had small walled courtyards where the sheep were kept. Because each family had only a few sheep, a shepherd for each household was not justified. So several households would have one shepherd to look after their sheep. Often, and ideally, the shepherding was done by a son, or at this time, perhaps two daughters, from one of the families. If no such person was available, someone else. They would hire someone from outside of the family to care for the sheep, to shepherd the sheep. Early each morning, the sheep would be taken out to to graze in the open country. The shepherd moved from house to house at the beginning of the day because he was known to the doorkeepers. There's someone keeping watch at the door of each house, and they would be known by the doorkeepers. The doorkeepers would open their courtyard doors and allow these shepherds to call out the sheep. The sheep knew the voice of the shepherd and eagerly followed him into the open country. They knew why he was there and where he was going. The walls of the courtyard could be up to six and a half feet high, usually stone. And one who was not the shepherd, who had ulterior motives, would have to climb over those walls because the doorkeeper, of course, would not admit him. And the sheep would not recognize his call and would flee from him. That's, that's basically what's going on at this time. The, the setting and the context and the culture Jesus had in mind, and so would his hearers. In this parable, as will become clear soon, I hope, there are three main characters and two main points. The three main characters are the thieves or the, the thieves and the robbers are one. The shepherd is two and the sheep is three. And the two main points are these, that sheep can tell the difference between the genuine shepherd given to care for them and the thieves and the robbers. They can tell the difference. And second, true shepherds care well for their sheep, while robbers and thieves mean them only harm. Three main characters, two main points. The thieves and the robbers are the Pharisees, or the religious leaders of the Jews. Jesus is the shepherd, and the ordinary Jews are the sheep. The Pharisees, Jesus is telling this to them. The Pharisees were leading the rest of the Jews astray, while Jesus was leading them to good pastures. The Pharisees came in some ways, at least the way they were coming, on their own misguided authority with their own faulty wisdom and for their own twisted purposes. They shouldn't have done all that. They had a commission from God to do differently. But this is what they were doing, Jesus was saying. But Jesus, on the other hand, had come on the Father's authority with the Father's wisdom and in order to accomplish the Father's will. The genuine children of God, the true offspring of Abraham, which we'll come back to, 
recognized Jesus' voice as the only one truly from God. And the genuine children of God flee from that of the Pharisees. That's a harsh message to give to these people. But this is what Jesus was getting at. Almost certainly he had in mind the words of Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23. Just listen listen to this rebuke that many years earlier God had given. Ezekiel 34, thus says the Lord God. Jesus is saying another version of this. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Job of the shepherd is to lead the sheep to feed. You have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. The sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for the wild beasts. Similarly, in Jeremiah 23, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. You have scattered my flock and driven them away, and you have have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you. You don't want to hear that in this way. For your evil deeds, declares the Lord. So, Grace, this is an important message that Jesus was sharing. Heard rightly, it ought to have led the Pharisees to repent of their failure to lead as God intended, just as the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah were given a word from the Lord to share, that the shepherds would repent and lead as God meant. Heard rightly, it would have led the ordinary Jew to stop following them in their treachery and instead flee from it and from them and the Pharisees. And heard rightly, all would have recognized Jesus' unique goodness as a shepherd to lead to green pastures. Rightly heard, that's what would have happened. The problem, however, according to verse 6, was that Jesus' message wasn't rightly heard. Instead, look look at it, it says they did not understand what he was saying to them. That leads to the second section, verses 7 through 18, where Jesus expands and explains what he meant. Because those to whom Jesus was speaking didn't understand what he meant, he went on. As we consider these things, it's it's interesting, and it's important for us to note that the setting shifts slightly. Originally, Jesus was describing a scene where within the village, the shepherd, the rightful shepherd, went around and collected the sheep of the different families and would meet the doorkeepers, and they would allow the sheep to come out, and he would lead them into the pasture. Well, within this new setting, as Jesus wants to explain even more through it, Now they are out in the pasture. I'll explain why that matters in a minute, but let me read another quote from the same commentator. Here the setting is the open country into which the shepherd led the sheep that he'd gathered in the village for grazing, and where in the summer months shepherd and sheep might spend the night. Overnight the sheep were placed in roughly constructed round stone-walled enclosures. On top of the dry stone wall was covered with thorn. The top of the dry stone wall was covered with thorns to keep out wild animals. And inside the enclosure, the sheep were safe so long as the entrance were secured by the shepherd. The shepherd would sleep across the entrance as there was no door and no, no doorkeeper. Again, by changing the setting just, just a little bit, Jesus was able to expand on his nature and care for the sheep. 
to tell more about the goodness of his shepherding as well as that of the wrongness of the shepherding of the Pharisees and other leaders. And by offering this explanation, Jesus was able to take what was implicit in what he said just a minute ago and make explicit. Let's, let's begin to take a look at this section by considering the three contrasts that Jesus gives. The first is that Jesus protects the sheep while the Pharisees bring harm. In the beginning of this section, Jesus offered his third of seven. You remember there's seven I am statements that Jesus makes as he defines himself for his people. And this is the third of seven. We'll get to the fourth in just a minute. This time he explained that he is the sheep door. So Jesus said, verse seven, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. As we just saw, or as I just read, for an ordinary shepherd, this meant placing himself at the entrance of the place where his sheep would lay down to rest. And they had two primary functions. Get this, because we need both. First, it was made, it was to make sure that all the sheep were brought in, that none were missing. He would stand at the door and watch as his sheep and only his sheep, but all of his sheep were allowed in. And second, it was to keep everything else out. The true sheep and only the true sheep and all of the true sheep were let in and everything else was kept out. As the door, the shepherd would put himself between his sheep and anything that would come to them. Well, better than the best and bravest sheep shepherd, Jesus knows and protects those who belong to him, who have been entrusted to him by the Father, as he said earlier. And because he does grace, because he knows and protects better than any earthly shepherd, we can rest, you and I can rest, and all who hear his voice and come and come in can rest in the certain knowledge that no true sheep will be left out from Jesus' protection from Jesus' knowledge, and no ultimate harm can befall those who are brought in. That's awesome. That's awesome. Remember, Jesus is contrasting his work as a shepherd of his sheep with that of the religious leaders of his day. This means grace. Remember this. Write this down. Tell this to your friends, that the safest place you can be is with Jesus wherever he is. To be with Jesus in the midst of the fiercest war is safer than to be in an open, flowery meadow without him. When we find ourselves in some form of treachery, we cling to Jesus' promises, especially his promise of his presence. I am with you always, he has said. And Jesus will protect us as we teach and obey all that he has commanded and believe all that he has promised. This means, Grace, what you think it means as you imagine it for your life. It means that it is safer to be fired for holding fast to Christ's commands and speaking the good news in love than to keep your job by violating your conscience. It means it is safer to stand up for what is true among your friends' kids or adults when they tell lies about God or his world than it is to remain quiet and have a veneer of a friendship. It means that it is safer to take the gospel to hostile lands even unto death than it is to remain silent and comfortable at home. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It means that when the society around us falls into soft atheism or therapeutic deism or outright rage against God, it is safer to be with Jesus and scorned by everyone else than to capitulate to the godless. This is why Jesus can say, knowing full well that all who follow him will be persecuted. It's why Jesus can say, he'll say in chapter 15, that 
everyone who follows me will be persecuted. He knows this. He's not naive to this. But it's why he can say, knowing that, that I am the door. If anyone enters by me, in verse 9, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In verse 10, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. You'll be persecuted. See this next week. You'll be persecuted like I am and was, perhaps even unto death if you follow me. But that's part of the abundant life to which I came to bring you. And that's why he can say, knowing they would suffer, that I am the good shepherd. Jesus will protect his people, not from every hardship, as we saw two weeks ago, but from every ultimate hardship, from every hardship that will not end, from every death that will not die. Following Jesus in this life is not safe in that it will be marked entirely or maybe even primarily by comfort, but in that through him every discomfort for those who are with him will soon end forever. Jesus indeed laid his life down to ensure this. Remember, Grace, the greatest harm that Jesus will protect you from is greater than anything this world has to offer. It is from the wrath of God, which we deserve in our sin. He laid his life down to protect us from ever, every lasting hardship and ultimately from the everlasting hardship that comes from having fallen short of the glory of God. And then he took his life back up again that we might rise with him unto everlasting life. All right, that's the good news. On the other hand, the Pharisees and all who come before Jesus are thieves and robbers, he says in verse 8. And then in 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The key is in recognizing that by all who came before me, Jesus meant all who would set themselves and who had set themselves up against him as in the Pharisees, and before that the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, and the Egyptians, and on and on. But the same is true of all that have come after Jesus, as in secular governments, and false religions, and disordered ideologies, and anyone who claims for themselves the kind of authority that belongs to Christ alone. To drive the point home, Jesus likened all who would deny him as king and shepherd as a hired hand, rather than an actual Shepherd in the face of a wolf. Look at verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd. Remember, he's saying this about the Pharisees to the Pharisees. This is harsh. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep. I'm out of here. And flees. And the practical result is that the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is the hired hand and cares ultimately nothing for the sheep. He's there for a paycheck and nothing more. It's worth getting paid for in a measure of inconvenience, but not my life. Thieves and robbers may look mean, Grace, or they may look well-meaning. They might have sharp tongues or smooth talk. They might take by force or attempt to woo. They might do harm immediately or only later. But in every case, though, false teachers and godless leaders, Jesus says, come only to steal and kill and destroy in the end. We cannot be indifferent or casual, therefore, about false teaching or false teachers, whether in or out of the church. The things bad pastors and theologians and philosophers and politicians and professors and anyone else with a platform say are not merely discouraging or frustrating. They're deadly, Jesus says. 
As one of our esteemed members, I looked, he's not wearing the hat today, but as one of our esteemed members likes to remind us, bad doctrine hurts people. Jesus protects the Pharisees and anyone who sets themselves up against Jesus harms. That's the first contrast. Second, Jesus leads to good pastures while the Pharisees lead to bad. Not only does Jesus protect his sheep from harm, but he also leads his sheep to blessing and nourishment and refreshment. That's what is found in good pasture with good protection. Jesus says in I, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out into and find pasture. And in verse 10, next week's sermon, and I come that they might have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full. Again, we'll look at this in much greater detail next week. But for now, I want you to see plainly that Jesus' grace, where you find his command, where you find his promise, where you find where he went and where he's leading us, I want you to see plainly that Jesus only ever leads to that which is best for those who would follow him in faith. And in contrast, as we've seen, the Pharisees and false teachers only ever promise what we want, at least in our flesh, but only ever lead to that which we don't, suffering and poverty and ultimately death. One takeaway here is to follow Jesus and make sure we're following Jesus and not false teachers. But another is to make sure that we're following Jesus' example, that we are bringing to others the good news of Jesus, careful to speak only that which is good, to lead only that which to where that which is best, for building up, not for leading astray. Here's the third. Third and final contrast Jesus gives. Jesus, the sheep listen to and know Jesus, the true and good shepherd, but not the Pharisees. I hope, I hope to see this. The question is already rattling around in some of your heads. How, how do I know if I'm following Jesus or someone else? How do I know if I'm one of Jesus' sheep? How do I know if I'm a true sheep following the good shepherd or a false sheep following a false shepherd? How do I know, know if I'm being protected right now and led to good pasture or if I'm being deceived and led to slaughter? Jews of Jesus' day weren't sure. They, many of them certainly thought they were doing what was right. Jesus gives two straightforward answers. First, as we saw before, true sheep listen to Jesus' voice, recognize his voice. True sheep can tell the difference between the truth of Jesus' word and all the other noise that's out there. And second, true sheep truly know Jesus and are truly known by Jesus. True sheep don't merely know about Jesus. Kids, you got to hear this because you're learning a lot of good stuff in your Sunday school class. But true sheep don't merely know about Jesus or appreciate certain aspects of his teaching or leadership. Jesus tells us true sheep know Jesus and Jesus knows them in the same kind of personal and intimate way that Jesus and the Father know one another. That's amazing. That's next week too. I know, I know my own and my own know me. How? Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Well, in contrast, true sheep do not listen to false teachers and false teachers do not truly know their sheep. By God's grace, true sheep recognize the voice of Jesus, but not that of imposters and flee. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep, true sheep, do not listen to them. So who are you listening to, Grace? This is an important question. It sounds simple, and in some ways it is, but it's also profound. Who are you listening to? Who are you tempted to listen to instead of Jesus? 
What voices most influence your understanding of who God is and who you are and this world that you live in and your place in it? What voices most influence your understanding of what is good and beautiful and true and desirable and praiseworthy? Who is it or what is it that functionally most shapes your desires? The things you want in this life, where do they mostly come from? Who is it? Is it some podcaster or a political pundit or secular artist or a parent or a friend or some cumulative collection of nuggets you've picked up over the years? Movies or television actors, commercials, immature Christians, your own semi-sanctified common sense, or Jesus? Grace, make no mistake. Someone or something is forming your view of God and yourself, the world, and your place in it. Check carefully. Jesus is calling us to in this passage. What is that? And who is that? What voice or voices are most compelling to you? Similarly, do you know Jesus' voice well enough that you recognize it quickly? When you come across it, do you, can you spot it? Can you pick it out? Is it sweet to your ears in a unique way? And do you trust it enough that you eagerly come when he speaks without fear? No matter what he says and when he calls or where he calls you to, are you able to recognize right interpretations of God's word and wrong ones? We're, we're eager to help with that. More importantly, the spirit lives in you to help with that. Do you trust in him to lead you only to good pastures where you find his commands? Are they increasingly sweet to you to obey them and the knowledge that they are truly the path of life and joy? These are the kinds of questions Jesus' parable is meant to bring to our minds. John helps us to see the many destructive effects of listening to the wrong voices as God's people had. May we learn from them as we press further up and further into this passage. Look at verse 16. This is awesome. This is good news for us. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. I used to think that many aliens. Probably doesn't. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is such sweet news for us, Grace. The Apostle Paul unpacks this in greater detail in Romans 9. If you want to read more about this, read Romans 9. But the upshot is this. The true children of Abraham. Remember, the Jews are those clinging to the covenant promises that God had made first with Abraham, and not only to him, but to all his descendants after him. But what we see here is that the true children of Abraham are not merely those who share his gene gene pool, but those who share his faith. In other words, the covenant salvation that God had promised to bring is not ultimately for the physical offspring of Abraham, but for all who would hear Jesus' voice and follow him as Abraham did. We, as non-Jews, I don't... Maybe there's some ethnic Jews in this room, but most of us aren't, can be adopted as true sons and daughters because Jesus is the one true and good shepherd, and he has one flock of faith. That's awesome. That's good news for us. We'll come back to that later as well. Combine then all of this, all of this together leads us to the fourth I am. And it is the reason for the Father's perfect love for Jesus. When we look at all that Jesus meant and all that he accomplished and all the ways he's different from the religious leaders of his day, Jesus says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. There is no greater shepherd, Grace. There is no one that you can follow to greener, safer pastures. There is no shepherd who knows and leads and feeds and protects you better than Jesus. 
even as there is no shepherd who has paid a higher cost to gather and keep you, his sheep and all of his sheep, than Jesus. And combined, all of this is why the Father's love, Jesus tells us, rests perfectly and permanently upon Jesus, his Son. 17. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I laid my life down, that I may take it up again. No one, no one takes it from me. This will become really important for John as we get to Jesus' actual crucifixion, which is what this is referring to. Before Pilate, he stands there and Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to put you to death? Or Jesus says, you have, you have no authority other than that which you have been given by my father. That's what he means here. No one takes it up from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again, to rise from the dead. This charge I have received from my Father. So what's more, Grace? And this is the good news for us. As we lay our lives down in faith, the illusion that we're in control of ourselves, the illusion that we are in charge or that we have the right to rule ourselves or define ourselves or name ourselves or set our own destinies. When we lay our lives down in faith and follow Jesus as the Good Shepherd, The same love of God rests perfectly and permanently upon us as his sons and daughters. That's awesome. Finally, then, as John has done for us over and over and over again, he he helps us to see through the response of those who heard this. 19 to 21 is the response of those who were listening to Jesus when he said this. It makes it clear that some were not yet Jesus' sheep, who could not yet hear his voice. And we're left thinking that others, though, maybe. It's like there's something familiar to what he's saying. There's something in his tone that that I know I probably should be listening to. Here's what we read. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. When Jesus finished saying them, they talked among themselves about this, and they, they couldn't agree on what all this meant. Many of them, most of them probably said, yep, here it is again. Dude's got a demon. He's insane, obviously. Nobody talks like this except someone who's possessed by a demon or mad. Why would we be listening to him? Why do we keep showing up when he talks? Because it's always his craziness. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And they all knew, of course not. And so in conclusion, the question that that leaves us with once again, Grace, is whether or not you're listening to the voice of Jesus. When you read your Bible, is it increasingly sweet to you and life-giving? All of us struggle at times. Some of us regularly come to the Bible. It's an act of discipline rather than we, we just run to it and can't keep from it. But do you find yourself increasingly going to it because it's sweet and life-giving? When you encounter Jesus' commands, when he tells you what to do and it's different than what you're already doing, are they increasingly the desire of your heart? You you quickly see that even if there's some reluctance, that's right, and the desire of my flesh is wrong. When you read of his offer to come to him and to find life, are you growing in your trust in the truthfulness and goodness and uniqueness of that offer? Do you believe increasingly that he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but by him as our good shepherd? Likewise, Grace, will we collectively, as a church, will we be marked by what is easy or by following our good shepherd wherever he leads and whatever it costs? Will we gather together 
and acknowledge Christ as Lord of all? Or will we make excuses for pockets of pride and selfishness and worldly rule? We see here, Grace, leave you with this. We see here that the only safe, the only life-giving place is through the door of Jesus, who is indeed the only good shepherd. And so may we hear his voice and his voice alone and follow him.